Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the New Books in African American Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Bichetti, and this evening I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Christine Walker about her groundbreaking new book, Jamaica Ladies, Female Slaveholders, and the Creation of Britain's Atlantic Empire, published by the Omohundro Institute for Early American History and Culture and the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Jamaica Ladies was recently named the 2020 Best Book Award by the Society for the Study of Early Modern Women and Gender. Professor Walker is an assistant professor of history at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore. Jamaica Ladies is the first systematic study of the free and freed women of European, Euro-African, and African descent who perpetuated chattel slavery and reaped its profits in the British Empire. Their actions helped transform Jamaica into the wealthiest slaveholding colony in the Anglo-Atlantic world. Starting in the 1670s, a surprisingly large and diverse group of women helped secure English control of Jamaica and, crucially, aided its developing and expanding slave labor regime by acquiring enslaved men, women, and children to protect their own tenuous claim to status and independence. Female colonists employed slaveholding as a means of advancing themselves socially and financially on the island. By owning others, they wielded forms of legal, social, economic, and cultural authority not available to them in Britain. In addition, slaveholding allowed freed women of African descent who were not far removed from slavery themselves to cultivate, perform, and cement their free status. Alongside their male counterparts, women bought, sold, stole, and punished the people they claimed as property and vociferously defended their rights to do so. As slavery's beneficiaries, these women worked to stabilize and propel this brutal labor regime from its inception. Thank you so much, Professor Walker, for sitting down with me to discuss your extraordinary new book. Sure, and thanks for having me here on the show, Jared. I'm so thrilled to be here. I thought we could begin the interview with learning a bit more about you and your scholarship and how you became interested in studying the subject of female slaveholding in the early modern British Atlantic world. Sure. I'm a scholar of early America and the Atlantic world, and my research focuses on women's and gender history, slavery and colonialism in the early modern period. Um, But my path to this project on female slaveholders was somewhat circuitous. When I started graduate school, I had this very general plan to study women and slavery in antebellum America, Because this is what I'd studied in college. I really didn't know anything about the early modern period or about the Caribbean. And then I took a few classes on early America in grad school. And it really hooked me on this earlier period. 
But what I noticed was that most of the literature focused on either New England or the Chesapeake. And I really wasn't interested in studying these regions. Uh, And at the same time, I'd started to read about the Caribbean. And the magnitude of slavery in this region really made me rethink a lot of my assumptions and a lot of what I'd read about the origins of American slavery. So basically, my interests uh, kind of moved back in time and across the ocean to the Caribbean. But I didn't have a specific project focus. And then I think what often happens for historians, it was an archival discovery that sparked my interest in women, slaveholders in particular. I had to write a research paper for a class, and I really didn't know what I was going to write about. But I was lucky enough to have access to the Clements Library when I was at the University of Michigan. And one of the wonderful archivists there said, why don't you take a look at this Tussard collection? Um, And I didn't know what that was. uh, But it turns out that this was a collection of letters written between a husband and wife, Marie and Louis Tussard, who lived in 18th century Saint-Domingue, um, the island that then becomes Haiti. Now, Louis goes off to serve in the French army, and he leaves his wife in charge of managing their coffee plantation. And she handles every aspect of the business, including directly coercing and punishing enslaved people on the plantation. And the extent that she was involved in slavery really surprised me. And this paper, when I think about it in retrospect, was really the seed for Jamaica ladies. It sparked my interest in women's participation in slavery and really set me on this quest to find more women like her. The cover of Jamaica Ladies, it offers just such a striking visual of many of the themes that you just mentioned, but also those that you discuss throughout your marvelous new book. And I was hoping you could say a bit more about the cover artwork and the story it conveys to the reader. Sure, Jared. Um, I want to first say that it was very difficult to come up with a, a cover image for this book because there are virtually no images of women free or enslaved from early 18th century Jamaica. Um, My publisher and I chose this image, which is a late 18th century painting, not of Jamaica, but of uh, women in Martinique by a French artist named La Masserier, which depicts this mixed race family of almost all women sitting around a table in Martinique for a few reasons. So on the surface, this painting shares a lot in common with the Casta paintings that were produced in the Spanish Empire. Uh, These were images that strove to categorize people racially and show the gradual whitening of people of African descent. So I think from this perspective, the painting visually portrays some of the efforts that were going on earlier in the 18th century in Jamaica to categorize people racially and also to penalize free and freed people of African descent. But what appealed to me about this painting is that I think it tells a more complicated story about gender, race, and family in the Caribbean. So at the same time that it's trying to naturalize these racial categories, 
The painting also foregrounds women, which is kind of unusual. Um, they are the central figures in the painting. They are boldly asserting their gentility and their connections to global trade. So just for the listeners um, who haven't seen the cover, the women are holding porcelain teacups. They're dressed in fine muslin and silk. And my book is in part about these kinds of entrepreneurial women of European and African descent who are participating in Atlantic commerce. But what's most important from my perspective about this image is that I think it conveys the complexities of colonial Caribbean families. Um, perhaps the overt intention of the artist was to make them racially legible. But ultimately, for me, there's this ambiguity about authority, gender, race, and status in the image. And we see their complicated relationships with slavery in the painting. Um, it's really unclear who the enslavers and who the enslaved people are in the image. And so I thought this painting would be a way to really invite readers into a conversation about the tensions between these ideological and legal constructions of race and gender and people's lived realities. And this is really one of the major themes in my book. I think it offers a really interesting and um, a, a quite um, appropriate visual representation of, of so many things that you bring to light in this book. I think one of the most important, and it's a, a line that you you state in the introduction of Jamaica Ladies, is that most scholarship that studies uh, the subject of slaveholding in the Atlantic world figures the slaveholder normatively as a white male. And I think it's by reading Jamaica Ladies and also, you know, the cover artwork itself, it, it demonstrates that this is a far more complicated story than, uh, you know, the scholarship itself, but also the the historical record. Um, it seems to convey uh, to those of us who are so interested in the subject of slavery and slaveholding in the Atlantic world. And I, I really, I think it's, it's so important that you've used this language of free and freed, but also the range of descriptors, including European, Euro-African, and African women who were free or freed, and who enslaved men, women, and other men, women, and children, whether um, willingly or um, as a way to, you know, um, maintain a degree of stability. Um, and they're very, uh, I think, your tenuous, their tenuous claim to uh, financial and social independence. It's it's just such an interesting work that uh, the the artwork itself. I I didn't realize that it was from Martinique, um, but I think it it it's just it's uh it invites the reader to think about so many of the com the complexities that you discuss so thoroughly in the book itself. I'm, you know, thinking through the the arc of the book itself, I was hoping that you could briefly summarize the types of sources that you relied on in order to glean the stories of the female slaveholders and the enslaved men, women, and children that they held in bondage that you discuss in your book. And also, how did these various historical records allow you to portray the multiple dimensions of female slaveholding and the lives of their enslaved captives in early modern Jamaica? 
Sure. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that you appreciated the cover. It, it, like I said, it was, it was challenging to find an image. Um, and I think that that speaks to the challenges of finding sources as well. So, so to answer your questions about my, my path in finding the materials for this book, um, you know, when I was in grad school, I didn't have a lot of experience with the archives and I didn't really know where to begin looking for sources. I had this kind of catch-all approach, just trying to find anything related to Jamaica. And I think, as you know, with the, the work that you're doing, that it's really challenging to find evidence about women and enslaved women in particular who are especially marginalized in the archives. So what I found was that we're really dealing with the after effects of colonialism and slavery. When we do this type of research, um, you know, I began this project with an interest in interpreting literary sources, and I somewhat naively imagined that I was going to go and find personal letters and diaries and journals written by women. Um, but these kinds of rich descriptive materials never really materialized for me. So what I did find in Britain were a few collections of business letters written by women. And I looked at a lot of government records from the colonial period. And I used these government records to create the spine of the historical context that I try to weave into the book. But when I went to Jamaica, that was really the transformative moment for me in terms of figuring out what the sources for the book were going to be. Again, I, I didn't find any letters or diaries there, but what I did find were volumes and volumes of wills, inventories, and parish records. And this made me realize that I had to change the focus and really reimagine the entire project. Um, so what I did is I literally sat in the Island Record Office in Jamaica for months and recorded as much as I could from these documents, which on the surface can seem pretty dull. They don't offer that thick description that makes for more captivating reading. But they do contain some things that are equally valuable. Um, so what I found when I was looking through wills was first that women were making more wills than we might expect. Um, maybe about one out of every 10 wills was authored by a woman. And secondly, all, almost all of these women were holding other people in bondage. And so when I realized that, I decided to go through and record more than a thousand wills all of the wills women made during the course of a century. And this data really became the heart of the book because the wills give us a glimpse of the lives of the women and the people that they enslaved that I really wasn't finding anywhere else. So just to give you an example of the kinds of women that appear in these types of documents, I, I open the book with the story of this woman named Elizabeth Keyhorn, and I construct her complicated life from what are literally two sentences in her will. So I know that Elizabeth was moderately wealthy. She lived in Kingston. She owned property and she enslaved two other women, Daphne and Jenny and their daughters. 
But when I studied her will more carefully, I noticed that Elizabeth makes this very, very brief reference to her own children, whom she described as still being enslaved. And so this one sentence in her will opened up all sorts of fascinating questions about Elizabeth and other women like her. You know, we we have this woman here who probably spent part of her own life enslaved, who somehow managed to obtain her own freedom and to get married and become a property owner. Then she goes on to enslave other people, but at the same time, her children are still being held in captivity. So these are the kinds of stories that can emerge from sources like Wills, but you have to be patient. I think you probably know this from some of your own research, and you have to read closely and often read between the lines. Elizabeth doesn't reference her racial status, for instance. So if I had missed that half sentence in her will, I would have just assumed that she was a white widow. Um, and I would have really mixed, missed the complexity of her family's relationship to slavery. And I think Elizabeth's story exemplifies the kind of counterintuitive nature of working with sources like Wills because they seem so simple and almost formulaic, but they actually end up revealing these very complicated stories about people's lives. Absolutely. I would, I would also, um, you know, in addition to that, um, one of the things that Jamaica ladies for me was able to demonstrate is the very complex worlds that these women navigated, uh, whether they were European, Euro, African, or, or women of African descent, who, um, you know, through a variety of different circumstances that we'll talk about later in the interview, um, they became female slaveholders in their own right. And I think that um, the, the Keyhorn example was was one of those that it reminded me quite a bit of, of, of Marisa Fuentes' work on Rachel Pringle Polgreen in Barbados. And um, just thinking about um, female slaveholding in the Atlantic context, but also um, the the difficulties of telling these women's stories in a way that doesn't um, necessarily uh, trivialize their own prior experiences in bondage. And I'm wondering, as you, when you came across this will, specifically, did, were you able to, uh, perhaps that would <laughs> spoil, spoil the book for readers, but were you able to discern uh, additional uh, fragments of Elizabeth Keyhorn's life from other archival records, or was her will the only document that you found in the course of your research that uh, told you more about her life in you know in uh, early modern Jamaica? For Elizabeth Keyhorn specifically, and this this would be true for many of the women I studied. That was the only document that I have of her life. Um, so for some women, I might have their will and their inventory. So I that that would give me another um, piece of the puzzle in figuring out a little bit more about them. But for her, it in and for so many women, they're really only appearing in these wills. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to use these kinds of sources, because otherwise we just, we miss them um, because they aren't appearing in other sources. Absolutely. I think it's, it's just, it's such a testament to um, how fragmented the archive is, you know, um, 
especially for women of, of African descent. Um, at the beginning of the book, you set out just an absolutely brilliant historical and historiographical overview of the evidence and arguments that you set forth in the pages that follow. And for our listeners, what were the central historical and historiographical misconceptions that you set out to reframe or correct in Jamaica ladies? Uh, thanks, Jared. This is this is a big question, and I think um, the the history and the historiographical misconceptions are are interrelated. Um, so overall, my book is adding to the narrative of the origins of Atlantic slavery. That's what I'm really interested in through the story of Jamaica. Um, I wanted to understand how Jamaica became the wealthiest and the largest slaveholding colony in the British Empire in what's a remarkably short period of time. But the foundational histories of slavery in Jamaica and really in early America more broadly all focused on men and scholars tended to pay attention to elite white men in particular. So this focus has produced a narrative where these kinds of people are the founders of American slavery and that they construct these societies that are very intensively patriarchal and very masculine. Women's roles in propagating slavery really hadn't been explored in a systematic way. Um, But as a historian of women and gender, I knew from the other literature that I was reading that women were engaged in all sorts of commercial activities in early America. And it didn't make sense to me that they were both economically active, but also completely disempowered in relation to slavery. And I kept seeing these oblique references to women slaveholders in the literature that nobody was really interrogating. And so in terms of the fields of scholarship that I was drawing on to make these connections, one was the body of work done by early Americanists uh, and people who were studying gender, sexuality, and race in particular. So scholars like Kathleen Brown, Kirsten Fisher, Claire Lyons, these were the new works when I was in grad school, which, which might date me a little bit. But none of them talk about the Caribbean, and they didn't study women slaveholders. So they all conclude in different ways that white women were increasingly disempowered in the 18th century. And this just didn't resonate with what I was seeing in the Jamaican sources. The second group of scholars that strongly influenced my work were the people like Jennifer Morgan, Hillary Beckles, and Barbara Bush, who were investigating enslaved women in the Caribbean. (coughs) Excuse me. And the literature on this subject is quite rich and developed, but there is still this assumption that white men and primarily elite men were the architects of chattel slavery. Now, some people like Hillary Beckles and Natalie Zajac had raised questions about these assumptions, but again, nobody had gone through the archives systematically to investigate women's participation in slavery. And of course, the third group of people who I'm I'm in a conversation with are the scholars of Jamaica, people like Vincent Brown and Trevor Bernard, who have insisted for a very long time about Jamaica's centrality to the histories of early America and the British Empire. And reading in their work in graduate school was 
really transformative to me. It sparked my interest in Jamaica. But again, their work was largely focused on men, and there just wasn't attention being paid to all the ways that women contributed to colonial Jamaica. So these were really the the historiographical interventions that I was trying to make and the historical narrative that I was trying to build on. It, it seems also that the the work of, of Ellen Hardigan O'Connor um, as as well um, and, and other scholars who um, are, are thinking about um, women as entrepreneurs and, and the, the multifaceted ways that women engaged in the early Atlantic economy. It was it was really remarkable to see which I guess in retrospect now I, that I mention it, that, that this work wasn't uh, published quite at the time that you would have been, uh, you know, beginning to frame your dissertation project. But it, it was really uh, exciting to see this, all of this new scholarship um, and, and the ways in which uh, women as um, economic actors specifically, uh, which I'm very excited to discuss with you more, uh, in the later parts of our interview, but it, it was it, it's it's really interesting, I guess, to see a new generation of women's and gender scholars um, whose whose research has really com- uh, complicated so many notions about uh, women's participation or you know their uh, assumed disempowerment in matters including economics, slaveholding, etc. It's it's such an exciting group of uh, literature that you're you're um, having in conversation with one another um, but in, in ways that you yourself are making some very novel historic arguments it's it's such an incredible book thank you <laughs> the in the first two chapters of Jamaica ladies you bring us into the worlds of, of female slaveholders in two Jamaican port cities in Port Royal and Kingston in your recreation of the cityscapes, the sights, the sounds, and the smells, it's, it's just so rich and evocative. But more importantly, you introduce us to a cast of historical characters whose presence, as you mentioned just a moment ago, is typically characterized as disempowered or marginal in the growth of the fledgling British Empire. And so what were the lives of the first generation of female colonists like in Port Royal and Kingston, Jamaica, in the late 17th and early 18th centuries? And how did the growth of slavery and the introduction uh, of, of slavery in, in this region really uh, play a huge role in their everyday lives as well? Uh, sure. So, so I would say that their lives are really varied based on their, their economic, legal, marital, and racial statuses. Um, if they lived in Port Royal, their opportunities changed dramatically over time in the early 18th century. And just to give listeners a little context, Port Royal was one of the wealthiest and also the most expensive towns to live in in the Atlantic world. And it's where famous pirates like Henry Morgan were based. And this is usually how we think of Port Royal as a pirate's haven or a pirate's nest. But what I found is that it was much more than that. Port Royal's role in both legal and illegal trade created all sorts of opportunities, not just for men, but for women. So I found evidence of women doing all kinds of things that we would expect them to do in a port town, running taverns, 
lodging houses, shops, and some women did quite well with these uh, businesses. But there were others, of course, who barely survived on the margins of this urban economy doing pretty menial labor. They might own a few livestock and pieces of furniture. But increasingly, what we see happening as we move into the 18th century is that more and more women in Port Royal and even more women in Kingston, um, what they have in common is their very quick investment in enslaved Africans. There's really no time before slavery, we might say, in English Jamaica. So as, as Kingston gains ever-increasing importance in the slave trade, women's involvement in slavery intensifies. So we might see a few women who aren't enslavers in the 17th century in Port Royal, but most free women, irrespective of their occupations, are involved in slavery in Kingston 20 years later. And so this provides women with all sorts of opportunities for economic mobility in Jamaica that are really different from other parts of the empire. Not only are Port Royal and Kingston major commercial hubs in America, they're also major hubs in the Atlantic slave trade. And this really amplifies women's abilities to engage in all sorts of business endeavors because they're relying on the labor of enslaved people to a larger extent than women living in other colonies. Um, and to get back to your question about what life was really like for women, uh, this is a little bit difficult to, to get at from the archives. But what I would say is that for some women, life is really great. Um, they, they build houses, they adorn their homes with all sorts of luxurious furniture. They wear silks and jewels, but for enslaved women or women who are recently freed from slavery, it can be quite desperate and precarious to live in these port towns. Um, Jamaica is a very violent society. These kinds of women are supporting themselves and their families on very meager resources. So I think the answer overall is that there's no single woman's experience, but what I'm trying to capture in the book is really a multiplicity of women's experiences in these port towns. Absolutely. And also just the, the quintessential role that they played in the, the development of, of Jamaica as a, what, as what you call, and as those of us who study the Atlantic world, one of the most exploitative and productive sites of slavery in the Atlantic world by the early 18th century. But it's, it's the role of women in establishing this society. I think you use this almost Ira Berlin-esque approach to it by looking at the different generations of women themselves, which is really such an interesting way to get at some of the first generation women. And then there's the second generations and, you know, and so on and so forth. But I think that specifically for the 17th century, it was such an important historiographic intervention that you've made by looking at Jamaican society from the perspective of slaveholding women in a time and in, in, in certain places where other scholars had not yet gone in their own work. Thank you. I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about what the entrepreneurial endeavors of women in 17th century Port Royal 
and early 18th century Kingston, the ways in which they overlapped and also, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the ways in which their commercial and financial entanglements differed, especially once Kingston became the primary maritime entrepot of the island by the turn of the 18th century. Sure. Yeah. So the fates of Port Royal and Kingston diverge pretty dramatically because Port Royal experiences a series of really horrific natural disasters. So it is nearly demolished by an earthquake, which then triggers a tsunami in 1692. And about a third of the city literally sinks into the ocean along with about a third of the inhabitants. So it goes from being one of the wealthiest ports to this absolute destruction within a day. But what's surprising is that many residents don't want to leave. They think that the new site that the colonial government has chosen for a port town is very unhealthy. They describe it as being a swamp, that it's infested with mosquitoes. And so they keep trying to rebuild Port Royal. Um, But then a fire burns down the city a few years later. And these natural disasters really push more people to Kingston. But Port Royal doesn't just die out. Um, I've just read the work of a scholar, Matthew McCauley, recently, and he's shown that it still remains this important naval base in the 18th century. And women stay in Port Royal, but there's definitely a larger concentration of free and freed women in Kingston. Um, What are they doing in both of the places? They're engaged in pretty similar occupations, mainly in the service industry that springs up to just provide for all of these maritime activities that are taking place in this deep water harbor that Jamaica has, but Port Royal is definitely quieter than it was in the 17th century, while Kingston by the 1720s is really booming. It was it was uh, quite a, a learning experience uh, to, to think about this very short window of time between about 1713, and I, I believe it was 1719, when the, um, the Asiento control of the Asiento changed hands. And by 1719, you discuss, you do, uh, it's just a very thorough exploration of the ways in which the South Sea Company, I believe, um, that its introduction to Kingston, how it transformed not only um, women's relationship to slavery and slaveholding in Kingston and in Jamaica, but throughout the Atlantic world. And I was hoping you could briefly give our listeners an idea of how by the 1720s and 1730s, Kingston becomes such a pivotal node in the the transatlantic slave trade. Sure. Yeah. So um, Britain acquires, like you mentioned, they acquire the Asiento, which is a contract to be the exclusive supplier of African captives to Spanish colonies. Um, And they set up this private company to carry out the trade in these enslaved captives and also a trade in imported goods to Spanish colonies. And the South Sea Company decides to relocate its base to Jamaica because Jamaica is in this unique geographic position um, within the British Empire. It's really Britain's only colony that is close to Spanish territory. And that makes it ideal for um, 
bringing enslaved people across the Atlantic, having them endure the Middle Passage, holding them in Jamaica for a few months, and then reshipping them to Spanish customers. And this, at least from my perspective, is really transformative. It's a game changer in terms of Britain's involvement in Atlantic slavery. This is when Britain really becomes the chief purveyor of captive Africans um, in the Atlantic world. And this is all happening out of Kingston. And so that's why I think looking at Kingston is so important if you want to understand the growth of Atlantic slavery in the 18th century. You talk about Anna Hassel's extraordinary life and use it her life as a window into the worlds of second and third generations of free women in colonial Jamaica. And I was hoping that you could share her really intriguing life and her life story with our listeners and tell us a bit more about how you came across her life in the course of your studies and in your archival research. Sure. So my discovery of Anna Hassel is really a perfect example of how so much of the work we do depends on this combination of tedious research and luck. It's also an example of how easy it is to overlook evidence of women, kind of what I was talking about earlier. So I stumbled upon these letters that were written by two women, Sarah Shanks and her daughter Anna Hassel, when I was in Scotland looking at a much larger collection of family business papers that mainly seemed like they were written by men. And I was pretty much ready to leave the archive and go home when I found these female authored letters. And the more I studied them and slowly pieced together their lives, the more fascinating they became. So just to tell the listeners um, what I can tell about Sarah Shanks is that she was born in England and she moves to Jamaica and then her husband dies. She has three younger children to provide for. Anna is the youngest. And she did what I suspect many women were doing to earn livings in port towns. She begins to sell imported goods. But the more I looked at her activities, I realized that she wasn't just an ordinary shopkeeper Rather, she was importing all kinds of stuff like ribbons, shoes, and buttons and reselling it to Spanish colonies. And this is really significant in terms of what I was mentioning earlier about the South Sea Company, because this means what she's doing isn't legal. She's she's, um, actually engaging in smuggling. So the South Sea Company, as I mentioned, has a monopoly on trade with Spanish companies But what we see with women like Sarah Shanks and Anna Hassel, who goes on to uh, marry a very wealthy merchant named Arthur Hassel, is that their activities really challenge our ideas about how women are engaging in trade. Um, Anna, even after she's married, really uses her husband's money to build her contrabanding business and do it in a much on a much larger scale than what her mother was doing in terms of exporting goods to Spanish territories. So this discovery of these women was completely unintentional. And the way that I figured out that Anna in particular was engaged in smuggling was that she uses phrases in her letters like for the Spanish trade or for Spanish customers. And then I see that she's even buying rosaries, which British colonists are not going to, there's not going to be a big market for those 
in British Jamaica. And she also begins investing in privateering ventures and capturing other ships for a profit. And this is where enslaved people enter the picture because the evidence suggests that she was using enslaved men as sailors on these privateering ships. And so when I put all of these pieces together and read the between the lines, it becomes clear that these women had their fingers in all sorts of maritime endeavors that really blurred the line between legal and illegal trade, and that they're relying on very skilled captive Africans to do a lot of the labor that's fueling their activities. It was interesting to see that um, upon her husband's death, I believe it was in 1748, that um, Anna Hassel then became um, the, she, her estate included 39 captive Africans and in that number in and of itself, uh, I believe in, in the course of your extensive research in wills and probate records across the century that you're studying in Jamaica, ladies, that the average number of enslaved Africans that uh, women held was eight and that men would have held it during this time was 12. And so when you came across not only the number of enslaved Africans that Anna Hassel um inherited after her husband died, as well as those that she held in her own right. Um, It was also just the extreme wealth that she held that was uh, predicated on her mother's engagement in this um, smuggling economy that you discuss, but also her own economic savvy. And I was hoping that you could say just a bit more about Anna Hassel's own entrepreneurial activities during the course of her life and the ways in which you know, this generational idea of, of uh, freed women, um, you know, her mother, Sarah Shanks, but also how her mother's economic activities were imparted into her daughter and how they informed her own business dealings with uh, individuals in Kingston, but also throughout the Atlantic world. Sure. Um, so for Anna Hassel's entrepreneurial activities, what I can tell from the, the letters that she's writing is that she is operating just like her mother with factors who are located in Britain. So these are people who would obtain all of the goods that she wants to trade and then ship them over to her. And then once she gets a hold of those goods, she will probably put them in a warehouse and then put them aboard a ship and somehow get them into a Spanish port um, and sell them to customers there. So that's kind of one branch of her trade. And this is this is the line of business, the smuggling business is the line of business that she seems to have learned from her mother and that her husband seems to have no problem with her engaging in. And I strongly suspect that they were probably involved in this together because he was quite wealthy. Um, the thing that she does that's new in terms of entrepreneurial activity is this investment in privateering ventures. And in Jamaica, there's always this kind of blurred line between privateering and piracy. And if you know anything about Jamaica, you know that Jamaica has this long history with piracy. Um, And so she seems to, because she is this more second-generation woman, she really branches out. She capitalizes on her husband's um, money And she participates in these economic activities 
that had quite a long tradition in Jamaica, definitely in the mercantile community. And this is something that really annoys the South Sea Company because they're supposed to have this monopoly. And women like Sarah Shanks and Anna Hassel are challenging and um, basically ignoring this monopoly and the activities that they're engaged in. So that's what I find so interesting is that, you know, we know a little bit about smugglers and about privateering, but we almost never hear about women's participation in these kinds of businesses. Absolutely. In the third chapter of of the book, you explore uh, the multifaceted responsibilities that free and freed women assumed as the managers, overseers, owners, and financiers of various agricultural enterprises on the island of Jamaica in the late 17th and the early 18th centuries. And this is a bit of a three-parter question, um, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about why female slaveholders' active roles in these industries have received such little historical attention. Sure. I think women's involvement in plantation agriculture, so just to sketch out the book for readers a little bit, the second chapter is about women enslavers in port town and port towns, and then the third chapter looks at women who are living in more rural areas. Um, I think that women in these plantation zones, we might call them, has been overlooked for the same reasons that women are often overlooked in many historical narratives. You know, I just talked about how we've overlooked women's activities and all of these illicit kinds of trade. Um, I think this is especially pervasive in in histories of uh, plantation slavery. And the answer has to do with some of the issues that I've talked about, the kinds of sources that have survived, how they're cataloged, and the gendered assumptions that we make about them. And these elements tend to feed off of each other and to produce a narrative that really distorts and diminishes women's roles. So, for instance, if you want to study plantation slavery in Jamaica, the richest and most accessible sources are unsurprisingly the ones that were created by elite white men, especially men who relocated to Britain, because this means that they had to write lots of letters to their plantation managers. It's really difficult to find these kinds of sources authored by women. I think I've, I've already said this. But this doesn't mean that women didn't create them. They, they probably weren't preserved by families, or they might still be buried in collections that are cataloged under male names. So if we use a source, for example, like the letters written by somebody like Simon Taylor, who other scholars have written about, who controlled the largest sugar plantations and was one of the wealthiest men in Jamaica at the end of the 18th century, we end up with this story that features elite white men as the primary agents of plantation slavery. And so it's gotten to this point when you hear Jamaica, you immediately envision vast sugar plantations with hundreds of enslaved laborers. But if we use different sources or approach well-known material with different sets of questions, then a very different picture of what plantation slavery actually looked like emerges. So for instance, I study this one woman, Mary Elbridge, who controlled a middling sugar plantation. She commanded about 125 enslaved people. And I find that she was not unique at all. I locate several other 
plantations in her neighborhood that were under female management. So basically, as soon as you start paying attention to women, they appear all over the place. And once you pay attention to them, it changes the word, um, the meaning of the word plantation itself. Some women are operating large sugar plantations, but many, including free and freed women of African descent, are involved in all sorts of other agricultural businesses. So for instance, I found that women seem to specialize in what was called pen keeping in Jamaica, but what we would call ranching. They raised cattle and horses and mules, and they sold them to sugar planters. And what I ended up realizing is that ranching and sugar planting had this symbiotic relationship where sugar plantations really relied on women to provide this livestock or they couldn't grow sugar cane. And women were the ones who were supplying them and uh, running quite profitable businesses. And in in addition to that, I think what is so important about this chapter specifically is that you use women like Mary Eldridge to complicate uh, somewhat static ideas of Jamaica as just this sugar producing, you know, complex, but that not only are women engaging in pen keeping, but they're also growing a variety of different crops that would have required, I guess, uh, a smaller initial investment, but were nevertheless integral to provisioning not only the inhabitants on the island, um, but also individuals throughout the Atlantic world. And I think with with Mary Eldridge specifically, um, her life and her relationship with her deceased husband's family back in Britain, it was it's, it's such a, a fascinating story. Um, and one that it, you can see over the course of that chapter, it, it seems to have taken quite a toll on her life as well. And so for our listeners who um, haven't read the book yet, I was hoping that you could give us a bit of a better idea of what Mary Eldridge's, um, you know, what her, not only her daily responsibilities in terms of overseeing the smooth functioning of um, the plantation that she owned and oversaw, but also her relationships with the enslaved women and men that uh, lived on the plantation, you know, the different um, relationships that she had with individual enslaved people, but also the relationships that she maintained with the Eldridge family that crossed the Atlantic. Sure. Um, So she's one of these people that I talked about where I do have about two or three sets of correspondence written by women. She's one of the women. So I'm able to extract more details about not necessarily her daily life, but her business responsibilities and her really complicated views and relationships with the enslaved people that she's coercing and exploiting for most of her life. Um, Just to talk about what she is broadly involved in doing, like you mentioned, it is making sure that the plantation runs smoothly, but she's interesting because she really keeps a foot in both the plantation world and the urban world of Kingston. And so this is one of the things I see that's really common in Jamaica, this whole idea that the plantation was separate from the port town just doesn't really work 
Um, so she owns a house on the plantation. She owns a house in Kingston. I know that she was invested in repairing the house and that her house in Kingston was filled with really expensive furniture, like mahogany chairs and a bed with mosquito netting. And I also use her inventory to think about the material lives of the enslaved people in her home. So from a few small details, I imagine how they were probably sleeping on old hammocks or old mats in this really finely furnished home. And so when she was there, these people would have acted as her domestic servants. And what we see with her relationships with enslaved people is this kind of bifurcated um, perception where the people on the plantation, where she doesn't have a lot of personal daily contact with them, she really views them as both commodities and as people who are hostile and almost continually challenging her authority. Whereas the people who I suspect were probably domestic servants, she develops what she thinks are quite close relationships with them. She doesn't say this, but I think if we talk about um, manumission practices later, I can get into the details of some of those relationships that she had. So like many of the women that I study, we, we just see this spectrum of relationships and dynamics with enslaved people. Um, in terms of her relatives in Britain, those relationships are also complicated because she's probably born in Jamaica. She is um, fully committed to being in the colony. She is not elite in the way that her British relatives are, and they rely very heavily on her to do all sorts of local business for them and really make a profit for them from um, her participation in plantation slavery. But ultimately, they don't really treat her like a full member of their family. And she ends up, I mean, she feels sorry for herself. She, she ends up wealthy, but not as wealthy as she thinks she should have been because of all this work that she'd done for him, done for them, and for her brother-in-law in particular. So that's a little bit more about Mary Elbridge. It's interesting also how she accesses... Um this idea of uh, the dependent woman in her subsequent exchanges with that family, which I would highly encourage readers to read um, chapter three, uh, not only the whole entire book, but chapter three specifically. I think that Mary Eldridge, you know, her life, it, it really, it, it's, a, I don't want to say it sophisticates, but it, it challenges so many assumptions that those of us who study women, gender and slavery, that, you know, at least when I first encountered your work, I was just, her life offers such a, a provocative window to think about the, not only the financial acumen of women like her who inherit a plantation that is essentially, you know, um, it's falling apart for lack of better words. She has to get the finances straight, but she also, as you mentioned, she's having to re rebuild the infrastructure, um, renovate the, the home in which she lives, but it's it's dependent on the labor of the enslaved women and men who she coerces and exploits that her wealth and the wealth of her family throughout the Atlantic world is generated. It's just, it's a, it's a very interesting story that is so in incredibly told in the book. Thank you. 
In later chapters of the book, you analyze the unique inheritance customs that were established on the island of Jamaica, which were developed, as you discuss, in response to the dire straits of local circumstances on the island, including but not limited to sky-high mortality rates, uh, frequent epidemiological outbreaks and natural disasters, such as those that uh, just completely decimated the, the town of Port Royal in 1692, but also seafaring deaths and a range of other maladies that characterized everyday life in the early Atlantic world, which were conditions that made Jamaica essentially a cradle of death, or in the parlance of the historian Vincent Brown, the Reaper's Garden. And and, and it's interesting in the ways in which this, this culture in which death was premature death, and for lack of better words, was... Uh, it mandated frequent estate planning in the probating of, of last wills and testaments, which produced a body of evidence that you, as a scholar of female slaveholders, but also British Empire and the Atlantic world more broadly, that you were able to interrogate to discern more about the lives of female slaveholders in Jamaica. And I think that the analysis that you provide of the wills and the estate inventories is particularly noteworthy. And they testify to your diligence as an archival detective and as a historian. And the data itself, it's just, it's its really incredible to think about the, just the massive amounts of data that you have gone through to discern patterns of not only inheritance, but also of manumission, which I'm excited to speak with you more about momentarily. And I also would say that it's a excellent dissertation topic for for graduate students who are still you know searching for the perfect dissertation topic to to think about so much of the work that you've done i think you know in our prior prior correspondences it's it's the work of of social historians that in some ways has fallen out of vogue in a way but is yet still so important to understanding the lived experience the lived experiences of of the enslaved, but also the their enslavers, um, and, you know, in, in the face of of such um, sustained archival silences. But to to kind of move us forward, what why were Jamaican inheritance patterns unique in comparison to elsewhere in the British Atlantic world, aside from those that I, I mentioned just a moment ago? Yeah, so I I just wanted to add just bolster what you said about the importance of using sources like wills and inventories. I agree with you that they've fallen out of fashion in a way, but it's important to remember that inheritance is the primary way that people acquire material resources in the early modern era. It's not wage labor. Very few people are wage laborers. And so I think if we want to understand ordinary people in particular, it's crucial to look at these kinds of documents. Um, My own interests definitely tend to be with quote-unquote ordinary people who are actually quite a diverse group. I'm not as interested in more aristocratic elites. And I think there's this assumption that um, scholars make that only wealthy people made wills. This was a question I used to get when I was working on my dissertation But I found that the opposite was really true, at least in Jamaica. Even women who were pretty poor, who maybe owned a goat or a few chickens and some old furniture, were still making wills. And the reason that they were doing this is usually because even the poorer women on the social spectrum owned at least one or two enslaved people. And so 
I just want to stress again that these wills gave me access to this whole social group and the people that they held in captivity that would otherwise have been neglected. Um, To answer your question about the patterns that I see in Jamaica and how they're different or whether they're different, um, I do use the wills in two ways. So I look at I look at them to think about people's individual lives, but also to sketch out broader patterns in terms of women's involvement in slaveholding. And I want to say that I don't think Jamaica's inheritance patterns are necessarily unique. So I'll I'll second that um, that point that you made to graduate student listeners that I think there's a lot of work left to be done on figuring out the extent of female participation in slavery, we really urgently need to get into the archives in other colonies in the British Empire so that we can make these fruitful kind of comparisons between Jamaica and other British colonies, right? Because otherwise there's this perception that Jamaica was unique and that's not necessarily true. We just don't know. Um, What I will say is just to, to reiterate some of the points that you made that conditions in Jamaica are more extreme. So this leads to more extreme inheritance patterns. Um, The conditions on the island strongly uh, influence property transactions. So Jamaica is a place where people in Europe go if they want to make a lot of money. And this correlates directly with the island's massive role in the slave trade that I talked about earlier. Greater access to enslaved people generates more wealth. Um, That's just a basic point I think most of us would be familiar with. So for instance, how this translates to women's wealth, the average woman slaveholder in Jamaica is probably 10 times wealthier than a man or a woman living in a place like Boston or London. So this intensification of wealth is dramatic. But Wealth is always tempered by violence and danger in Jamaica. I think you mentioned mortality rates. They're really catastrophic on the island, and they don't get better in the 18th century, which is what happens in other colonies. Um, Some of the other things that are going on that we need to add into this context when we're looking at inheritance patterns and making these kinds of comparisons is that Britain is almost continually at war with France and Spain, and the Caribbean is an important theater of war. So the island is constantly under threat of military invasion. This is also, as we know from pop culture, the golden age of piracy, which really adds to the volatility of overseas trade. And finally, something that I talk about in the third chapter of my book is the colonists are losing this war against the Jamaican Maroons, who are the descendants of formerly enslaved people who have their own sovereign polities in the mountains of Jamaica. And so all of these events combine to make Jamaica this very volatile and risky place to live, and the likelihood of living is not high. (laughs) Uh, You're probably not going to live into your old age there. So I think the patterns that we see in inheritance really reflect people's efforts to cope with this massive influx of wealth largely held in enslaved people while they're experiencing perpetual turmoil. Frequent deaths mean frequent property transfers, and this makes property very insecure. 
And it's also really difficult to transfer property along male lines because many families just don't have surviving male heirs. So when I look at the wills, one of the things I noticed is that daughters, more families seem to have daughters than they have sons. And this really just disrupts the British customs related to inheritance that favor men in terms of property transmissions. What I see is that in order to maintain control of family property, including enslaved people, is that families uh, at every level of the social spectrum on the island involve female relatives. So mothers, daughters, nieces, aunts are much more involved in um, managing estates, and they tend to own larger estates than women living in other parts of the empire. And they really act as the glue that's holding this colonial society together, and they are protecting Jamaica's investment in slavery. To go back to something that you were speaking about just a, a few minutes ago about Mary Eldridge and, and manumission as well, um, and, and the ways in which you're able to use wills uh, and uh, inventories as a window into not only the individual lives of these women, but also the the individual lives of the enslaved women and men and children that they um, that they held captive and exploited their labors. Uh, we were talking about Mary Eldridge, and you we had discussed you know her decision later in life to manumit um, some of her enslaved women. Uh, that you discussed, I believe it was in chapter three of the book, but then again, you go back to in the final chapter of of Jamaica Ladies. Um, And so to kind of bring the conversation full circle, I was hoping that you could discuss uh, a bit more the patterns that you noticed among um, manumission practices uh, of female slaveholders and the ways in which gender and the gender of one's enslaver played a decisive role in determining who would be manumitted and at what age in colonial Jamaican society? Sure. So I end the book, like you say, with these stories of women who are freeing certain people using their... So in Jamaica, you can legally free somebody by making a provision in your will. And what I noticed was that more women than I'd expected were leaving manumission instructions to free captives. And this struck me as really strange because most scholars of the British Empire traditionally present the manumission as something white men offered to enslaved women and the children they father with them as sort of a reward for sexual relationships that are often accompanied by sexual coercion. Um, And I study men's wills as well, and what I see in terms of their manumission practices confirms this narrative. So men definitely favor their biological children when they free people. But what was really interesting and harder to explain was the fact that women enslavers preferred to free other adult women and to a lesser extent enslaved children. Now, figuring out why women preferred to free other adult women is really difficult. The wills, as I've said, are very brief. They don't contain explanations for why people are making these kinds of decisions. So to to bring it back to Mary Elbridge, 
she is very typical of the kind of manumission practice that we see women engaging in. She makes provisions to free two adult women, and she offers these women some pots and pans and clothes and even a house in Kingston. But what was more intriguing to me is that she gives an enslaved boy named Scotland to one of the women, this woman named Peggy. But aside from these brief instructions, she leaves no clues in her letters about why she frees them. She doesn't even mention this in her business correspondence or why she's effectively turning Peggy into Scotland's new enslaver. So this is one of the things that really blew my mind is that we have this woman who is at the same time being freed while also becoming an uh, an enslaver herself. And so in my book, I speculate about why this might have meant maybe Scotland was Peggy's son. Um, Maybe this was a way for Mary Elbridge to provide Peggy with some sort of valuable possession um, to protect her own free status. All we can really do when the evidence is so thin is make educated guesses about these kinds of relationships that led to these manumission patterns. Um, I think I've described earlier that women were normally small-scale slaveholders. So if we imagine the kinds of relationships that were forming between enslavers and enslaved people, these were people who were living in small spaces together that they probably worked together. And it's possible that some enslaved people were able to parlay these alliances strategically with their captives to earn freedom. We, we really don't know that much about women's manumission practices, and this is just another subject that is in need of more investigation by other researchers. And it's such a, a thought-provoking conversation that you've introduced in the ways in which manumission practices themselves um, not only shed so much, uh, I shouldn't use, that's a bit um, exaggerated, the ways in which they shed light on individual enslaved persons. And ideally, there are other archival records that we can use to stitch together their lives after bondage, which, as you just mentioned, is an incredibly difficult, if not impossible task, depending on time and place but also the ways in which gender and the gender of one's enslaver plays such a foundational and yet such an understudied role um, in determining the likelihood of being emancipated, but also just patterns more generally. I think it's 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 such a new conversation that you're bringing to the table that I'm I'm really hopeful that scholars writing you know dissertations and books in the future will really lean into the just the invaluable insights that you've given them, uh, particularly in the final chapter of Jamaica Ladies, as really a inspiration for undertaking this type of very tedious yet very important work. Thank you. I'm wondering if one of the last questions I wanted to ask you, and I I think I apologize if it's redundant, and also um, 
my apologies for mispronouncing uh, Mary Elbridge's name. It's not Eldridge. Uh, there's a, a woman who I study um, whose name is Eleanor Eldridge. And so the Eldridge and Elbridge, I apologize um, for confusing the two. Um, but what was what was the most challenging aspect of writing Jamaica Ladies? Aside, f- you know, I think... Uh, um, Aside from maybe some of the things that I've asked you about previously, but you know, I think just in in terms of of the project itself and how it developed, I'm just I'm so curious to hear you reflect on the you know it, it's what, what we're given is is the the finish the final polished product, which is as I've mentioned, it's it's a it's a fantastic book. But what what were some of the challenges that you faced when you were putting the book together, both as a dissertation and as a book itself? Sure. Um, so I think there were many practical challenges, but also emotional challenges uh, involved in writing this kind of work. Um, whenever you want to write about people from the past who were very marginalized, who don't leave a lot of written records, or in the case of enslaved people who were commodified, the challenge is really finding any evidence about their lives, and I think we've we've talked about those challenges today. Um, and so, what happened with this project is that I ended up using entirely different kinds of sources than what I'd planned on if I described my my research path a bit earlier. And these sources led me to develop a very different kind of project than what I had been imagining when I began the dissertation. And hindsight is, of course, 2020. So it's easy for me to see now how these practical research challenges really pushed me to grow as a scholar. But it definitely wasn't clear to me when I was sitting in the archives recording wills for months on end that that I would end up with this book that uses these wills in all sorts of ways. And so just finding the sources was one challenge and then figuring out how to navigate between this broad sweeping body of what was really data and these narratives that we've talked about, about Anna Hassel and Mary Elbridge, how are these two sets of information related that was really challenging as well and took a lot of reiterations and rethinking of the book structure. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my editor and I changed the pieces around and moved them and, you know, came up with one idea and then uh, went in a different direction to get to this final version. So there were really big writing challenges and structural challenges as well. Um, And those are all practical. But then there's also the emotional challenge that I don't think historians talk about as much, or at least we didn't when I was in grad school, and hopefully there's more awareness now of just confronting this really appalling realities in the past when you go into the archives. I think, Jared, you're working on a project about enslaved women, so you've probably had these moments of just real horror when you're looking at piles of material that are commodifying and brutalizing people. And the past just becomes a lot more immediate. I mean, we read so much literature written by other scholars, but it's not really real until you get into the archives. And we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that or talking about it. And I really wasn't prepared for it when I began my research. And what my sources showed, again, this is because of the kind of sources that I'm looking at, 
was just how pervasive slavery was, which we know, but definitely among women, but also that it was really unproblematic from the majority of people who lived in Jamaica at every level of the social spectrum. And so my book, in a, in a sense, is an attempt to grapple with the mentality that made this possible. And this takes us full circle back to the importance of studying women enslavers. You know, it's, it's easier in a way to attribute the violence of Caribbean slavery to white men. But when we look at women, we have to confront just how widespread slaveholding actually was. And this makes it, from my perspective, more disturbing. But it also explains the magnitude of Atlantic slavery, right? So the British slave trade expands so rapidly into 18th century because tens of thousands of ordinary men and women are all too willing to participate in it. So these are just some of the the different types of challenges that I worked through as I was writing the book. I think the emotional uh, challenges is it's, at least in my experience, it's something that's becoming more readily acknowledged, but I don't think um, discussed or analyzed to the degree, particularly for those of us who are working in the trenches of slavery studies right now, that it, it, it certainly has an impact on you. Um, there's no way of, of dissociating the lives that you are, are reading about, but then having to put together these lives in a way that is both um, not recreating these scenes of subjection to borrow from the parlance of, of Sidia Hartman, but also one in which um, you know these women and men's lives are being explored in a thoughtful yet uh, a truthful fashion. Um, that often, as you mentioned, it involves a great degree of violence that's both physical, but also epis- um, epistemological as well. Um, I'm, you know, transitioning now, um, after you've finished the book, um, I wanted to ask you before we parted ways today, what, what are you working on now? What can readers hope to look for in the coming years from you, Professor Walker? Uh, sure. Um, so just to continue on the the theme of violence, and I think what you said is really important about not just the, you know, not dwelling on the these scenes of subjection. That's really something I tried not to do in the book. Um, it was a very delicate project, but I did want to explore the topic of female violence more than I am able to in the book, partially because of sources. So one of the things I'm working on is an article about a court case that I found randomly buried among all the wills that I was looking at of a woman in Jamaica who is accused of terribly abusing her own daughter. So that makes it unusual. And it's even more unusual because she enlists her captives in beating her child and so this story violates all sorts of gendered assumptions that we have about violence. And I'm really thinking through that with the article that I'm working on now. I'm also starting to work on my second book project. I think we we chatted about a little bit earlier before we went on air. Um, I've been based in Singapore for a few years, and this has led me to expand my interests beyond the Atlantic world and to think about the British Empire in a much broader and more cohesive way. And I've become 
really interested in the economic and cultural connections between the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean in particular. So I'm still really invested in telling the stories about women entrepreneurs and enslaved people. Um, But the next book is going to focus specifically on women's involvement in textile trading and production using cloth from South Asia. And I also want to think about how free and enslaved women used textiles in all sorts of ways to refashion themselves in the Caribbean context in particular, but borrowing from these um, fashion rhetorics that are coming out of India. So that's the second project. It sounds really wonderful. I can't wait to hear more about it and also to to read it when it comes out. Um, I wanted to take a moment to thank you so much for, you know, carving out the time to speak with me uh, about Jamaica Ladies, but also I, I wanted to just, again, reiterate what an important work it is and how fortunate we are that you have written the book and now that it's out. Um, as a reminder to our listeners, uh, Jamaica Ladies can be purchased from the University of North Carolina Press, uh, both in hardcover as well as paperback. Is that right? Yeah, the paperback is definitely a lot more affordable. <laughs> so <laughs> I would encourage the, the hardcover is really for librarians. Um, yeah. Well, thank you again, Professor Walker. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jared. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. <laughs>